morning, Harvest. Uh, how y'all doing? All right. Uh, it's truly a blessing to be here preaching here this morning. I'm guessing I didn't do too bad of a bad last time, and so Pastor Dale graciously gave me another opportunity to preach. Uh, if you guys could lift him up in prayer, as Eugene shared, uh, he'll be preaching in a couple of hours in California. I um, pray that as much as he blesses our church through the faithful preaching of the word, that he will be able to encourage and bless um, those over there as well. A couple of months ago, after uh, our, we wrapped up our own youth retreat, uh, Pastor Diel, his family, myself among others, we, went, we attended this retreat called K-Flower. And because they asked me to share a workshop on the last day, that meant that the first couple of days I was given babysitting duties. And on the first night, I could tell Elijah was getting kind of restless um, during worship, and so I decided to take him outside for a walk. And at night, if you go out onto the dock, um, you can walk out over there, and there's a lake. And uh, on this lake, there's this massive floating cross. And I knew this all too well because it was during my formative years in youth ministry that I would take a girl that I liked out there and use some of my moves to sweet-talk her, all right? I was pretty smooth back then, not so much anymore. And I would, um, I used to be young and reckless, right? But I'm not like that. And I would use, I'm going to show some of you guys some of the pickup lines that I use, use, okay? I give you permission to use them, okay? For all the, for all the guys in here, all right? I'd be like, hey, um, I was looking in the book of numbers, and I realized I don't, I don't have yours. Or um, <laughs> I was reading, I was reading the book of Joshua, and I was wondering how many times I have to walk around you to make you fall for me. You and me, we're like loaves of bread and fish. We'd be a miracle together. Woo! Last one. It's my favorite one. I was going to read Proverbs 31, and then I realized I could just study you instead. Uh, just kidding, just kidding. I, I actually never used any of these lines. Uh, one, because I had no game, and two, Pastor Deal would probably murder me uh, back then. Um, but here I was again, and as I looked down to the cross, uh, the brightness had faded a little bit. It wasn't as aesthetically pleasing. It was dusty and old, but as I looked at it, I stood amazed and in awe of it. It was more beautiful, more precious to me now than it was 10 years ago. And I was, as I was walking with Elijah, I asked him if he knew what that floating thing on the lake was. So I said, do you know what that is? And he answered, a cross? And I asked him, do you know who died on that cross? He goes, Jesus? I was like, okay. I said, why did Jesus die? To which Elijah replied, he died for me. And I don't think Elijah fully understands the depth and magnitude of what that really means. But this is one of the fundamental truths of the gospel that has forever changed my life. And as we conclude our series on Jesus' final hours, we will see one of the most beautiful pictures of God's infinite, eternal love for us. For those of you who might be unfamiliar, today is a day that we call Palm Sunday, which marked Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And if you look back, Jerusalem during this time of year was an exciting place to be. For the Jews, Passover was a great pilgrimage festival, and they flocked to Jerusalem by the masses. So typically there are about 40,000 people or so who lived in the city on average, but during the Passover, about six times that much lived in the city of Jerusalem. And it was here, 2,000 years ago, about 33 AD, that Jesus entered into Jerusalem on a donkey. Which emulated the same exact way that King Solomon entered the city 
when he was declared king of Israel, as we see in 1 Kings 1.33. The gospel writers tell us that the crowds responded with excitement. They paved the way with palm branches as they laid cloaks down for Jesus to go. Because what they expected was a deliverer from Roman occupation. They wanted to be free from Gentile oppression. And Jesus looked like this very Messiah who would come to free the Jews and lead them on a second exodus. That's why they welcomed him and prepared the way as a Davidic king. Saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. These very, very people who, say, who said, crown him as king that would five days later say, crucify him. And it was on Palm Sunday that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, eventually leading to the final hours of Jesus' life. The final hours in which we've observed these past several weeks, the final hours in which he would have his last meal with his closest friends, only to be betrayed by one of them. The final hours in which Jesus' three closest disciples, whom he chose, fell asleep on him in the garden of Gethsemane when he needed them to pray the most. The final hours in which Peter, one of the first disciples, the rock, the faithful one who walked on water, the one who told Jesus that he would die before disowning him, would soon after disown Jesus three times. And as we will, as we will see today in Jesus' final hours before his crucifixion, Jesus is handed over to Pilate by the chief priests and religious leaders and now it was a Roman custom to release one prisoner during the Passover. And so the question will have to be answered. Who will go free? Barabbas or Jesus? And so if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew 27, verses 11 to 26. Matthew 27, verses 11 to 26. If you don't have your Bibles, it'll be up on the screen for y'all. I'll start reading from verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now, it was the governor's custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew it was out of envy that they had handed Jesus over to him. When Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message. Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called Christ? Pilate asked. And they all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. 
when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that insisted, but that instead an uproar, uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, let his blood be on us and our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. This is God's word. So what do we see here in Jesus' final hours, moments before his crucifixion, as his fate is left in the hands of a man named Pilate? The first thing is, it's not always best to go with the flow. It's not always best to go with the flow. If you are here the last time I preached, I uh, told you all a story about that happened in the Dominican Republic. And so I thought, why not? Let's do it again. All right. So it was about my senior year in high school, which was forever ago. And we had a large team that year. There were about, I think there were about like four pastors that we had on staff that went on this trip. And back then we stayed in these classrooms that had like these prison bars as windows. And all the girls stayed in in one room while the guys stayed in another room. And so as you guys uh, might assume, there was like no privacy whatsoever. There are no, there's no privacy. So if you wanted to get changed, if you want to change and get dressed, you'd have to just do it with everybody else. And so uh, one night after we came back of door-to-door evangelism or something like that, um, after a long, hard day of work, we had to get ready for our night or evening worship service. And so we got back uh, into that room. While we were in the room, one of the pastors was like, uh, I'm not going to name who he is, okay? One of the pastors was like, let's prank the next guy that comes in. This is what we're going to do. We're going to turn off all the lights. We're going to turn off all the lights. And the next guy that walks in, we're going, to, we're going to tell them we're going to change. Everyone's going to change together. And after about 30 seconds, we'll point our flashlights at him when he's in the dark. Okay? And so we're all giggling and wondering, like, who the next guy who's going to come in. We're like, man, I wonder who this chump's going to be. And uh, lo and behold, it happened to be the guy who was always getting pranked. He was always getting pranked. All throughout my high school career, he was always getting pranked. And so he walks on in, and we're like, hey, man, um, we're all going to change together. We're all going to get, we're all gonna, um, get ready for worship. And so we're going to turn off the lights. And so it's pitch black, you know, he can't see anything, to which he just wants, oh yeah, okay, cool. I'm trying to mock him right now, if you guys know who he is. So we turned off the lights, and it was pitch black, and you couldn't see anything. And so we waited for a little bit until um, we knew it was time, and the pastor, who will not be named, was like, now, now, now! So we all got our flashlights, and we shined it at him, and this is the, literally he was in this position the whole time. He, like, he literally was in the middle of changing, and he froze, he, like, he couldn't move. And we saw, every, like, we saw his like, entire like, backside. But the thing is, it was, it was like a good 15 seconds. He just stayed frozen in that position. <laughs> Utter shock and disbelief. So why would this guy on the team willfully change in the room with us? It's because he just went along with the rest of us. He followed everyone else. He followed the crowd. And as we look at this passage, we see Pontius Pilate. Pilate was the governor of Judea and the Roman prefect under Tiberius. And in order to maintain control, um, the Romans held exclusive right of execution. So the Jewish leaders, they had to approach Pilate in order to send Jesus to trial because they lacked any authority to impose the death penalty. And so the Jewish leaders, they weren't looking for a judge. They were looking for an executioner. And as Jesus stood before Pilate when asked, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus replies, if you look at the ESV translation, you have said so. Which I think is a better translation than NIV um, if you look at the original Greek text. Because had Jesus said yes, you have said so, which 
Had Jesus said, yes, you have said so, Pilate would have thought Jesus to be an earthly king. So had Jesus said yes, Pilate would have thought Jesus to be this earthly king who was leading a rebellion against Roman authority. And he would have grounds to press a charge against Jesus. But had Jesus said no to the question, this would negate his kingship in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus doesn't reply with yes or no, but you have said so. And in the same text in the Gospel of John, Jesus explains that his kingdom was a reign of truth, that his kingdom was not of this world. And so when Jesus was asked the second time by the chief priests and elders, he stood there silently, like a sheep before her shears, so he did not open his mouth. Because at that point, there was nothing else that Jesus could say to change Pilate's mind. And like, you could imagine that most people who are on trial, like, on trial they, uh, they're fighting for their lives. They'd be kicking and screaming, doing everything that they could in order to claim their innocence. They would have denied every accusation, allegation, or assertion against them. But Jesus stood there in silence because there was no need for a defense. There wasn't a need for a defense. He made no reply, not even to a single charge. Thus, to the amazement of Pilate, who knew very well that Jesus was innocent. In the Gospel of John, we see that Pilate could find no basis for a charge against him. Right? Pilate's final verdict was not guilty under Roman rule. There was no proof. Jesus couldn't find any guilt, or Pilate couldn't find any guilt, any wrong in Jesus. The perfect, spotless, blameless Lamb of God. Pilate didn't see Jesus as a threat to Rome because he hadn't committed a single crime. Think about it. This was simply a Jewish problem. This was simply a Jewish problem. Would the Jewish leaders who hate Roman occupation ask a Roman leader to execute someone because he was a threat to Rome? Think about it. It doesn't make any sense at all. So why? Why did Pilate just go along with the crowds? Because Pilate cared more about what people thought and wanted rather than doing the right thing. Pilate had initiated a custom at the feast to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. To release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And this custom was a, was a means of winning favor with the masses. And so you hear the cries of the crowd, the overwhelming pressure from the people, and the cowardly, weak-willed, people-pleasing governor is ruled by the people's court. Pilate didn't want to sentence Jesus to death, but the fickle people continued to cry out, crucify him. And he was persuaded to make a decision that he knew, he knew wasn't the right one. Back when I was in college, a group of my friends decided to go on a snowboarding trip for spring break. I think a couple of people are in this room, like Bible over there and Oogs. And we all went on this trip. So we packed up our bags and made, I think it was about a 16-hour drive to West Virginia. We crammed around 15 people or so into like this three-bedroom three cabin or this lodge that sat up on top of the mountain. So you walk outside and you could literally, you would literally be at the top of the mountain. That's how awesome of a place we had, okay? And it was my first time snowboarding. It was my first time snowboarding, but everyone I went with, they seemed to be like, really good. Like, they're all professionals. And they began by teaching me. I went, on the, I went on the slope, and they began by teaching me this move called the falling leaf, okay? This falling leaf 
And if there's one thing I mastered the entire trip, it was this move, all right? I got it down. I got the falling leaf down. You just kind of go like, go like this the whole way down. So you can't like do this. You just like do this. So you see me like going down for like four hours because I'm just doing that the whole time. And after the first day, I came to this conclusion. I stunk at snowboarding. My body would be wrecked every morning. I, I think that entire trip, we, we went through like three bottles of Tylenol or something like that. And after, but after the third day, I started to kind of get the hang of it, okay? I, I started to kind of get the hang of it. And so that night, everyone decided to go nightboarding. We all went nightboarding. And I don't remember who suggested it, but they were like, let's do tricks off of this ramp. Okay, let's do tricks off of this ramp. Mind you, I was terrible at snowboarding. I was terrible at snowboarding. I was so bad that the first time up, I couldn't get off the lift that takes you up. I was like, I was sitting next to the person. I was like, so how do you get off? And they're like, you jump. I was like, what? You jump off. The thing is, like, when we got to the top, the, the thing where you get off is like five feet. It was like a five-foot drop, and I couldn't do it. So you see, like, this one person sitting by himself just going all the way back down the, the slope. That was me. I was just, like, on there by myself. My partner already jumped, okay? My partner jumped, and I was just there by myself, like, single person. Everything else is empty, and you see me coming back down. And so, like, um, each time I had such a hard time getting off the slope that I would kind of just, like, stump. I would just kind of, like, tuck and roll. And then because everyone else is getting off at the same time, like, I have to, like, scramble away so that I'm not blocking the rest of the people behind me. So every time I went up, this is how I got off. And um, anyway, that night, I was kind of hesitant to make this jump off the ramp. Okay, so this ramp, I was like, man, I don't know. And so, well, like, some of the, my buddies were like, come on, man, you can do it. You can do it. I was like, yo, I got this. I got this. All right, I got this, all right? After I make this jump, everyone's going to be like, dang, Daniel. And I want, I want to be like, I was so hyped. I was so hyped. And it was finally my turn. And I went for it. Okay, I went for it. And the moment I was in the air, I immediately regretted it. <laughs> like, it felt like an eternity. Like, everything was in slow motion. And I ate it. I ate it so bad. I just kind of, I literally rolled down the mountain. <laughs> and so... It wasn't even like a graceful landing. Like it just, I just kept, the momentum carried me. And after I like, I came to a stop, I was just like kind of dazed and confused. I was like, what was I thinking? Like the only thing I mastered was the falling leaf. And so what makes you think that you can take a jump off this ramp? And I was done after that. I just like scooted off this side and like started building a snowman while everyone was like, <laughs> going, like taking these ramps. And so the thing is, like I cared so much about what people thought of me. And I'd be lying if I said, I don't struggle with this now. Living a life for the praise of people. Pilate knew. Pilate knew what was right, but refused to do anything about it. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, and his immediate response should have been to release him. His immediate response should have been to release him, but he couldn't bear to lose the approval from the crowds he could care less about how much he sinned against god and how much his conscience bothered him as long as he had the praise of men and we do this at times don't we we do this at times we'll make decisions based upon how badly we want to be accepted by other people We'll need the nicest and fastest car. The biggest house with the nicest technology. The fanciest job that allows us to travel. 
not because we want these things in themselves, but the praise and adoration that come with it. We'll do whatever it takes to be cool at the expense of other people. We'll dehumanize, demean, degrade people around us in order to fit in with the crowd and to be the popular kid at school. We'll dress a particular way to maintain a certain image. Or we'll work out like 10 hours a day to have these rock-hard abs. And oftentimes, we'll make these wrong decisions because we live for the praise of men. Our image and reputation have become these idols that we hold in our lives because we live for what our, desi- our hearts desire most. We live for what our hearts desire most. Listen, it costs nothing to join the crowd, but it costs everything to stand alone. That means not, if none of your friends around you are worshiping during worship or lifting their hands in prayer, that you're going to worship God regardless of what people might say. To make a stand and stick up for people in situations in which you know that it's right, even though you're going to be ostracized and pushed to the margins. To say, I'm going to, I'm going to live for Christ no matter what people think about me. I'm going to do what is right. I'm going to make choices that honor the Lord. I'm going to give up my Friday nights so that I can come to prayer meeting on Saturday mornings. I'm going to sacrifice my holidays, my vacation days, so I can go on a mission trip. I'm going to give up my reputation, even if that means I'm going to pray for my meal in front of others. Listen, undoubtedly, undoubtedly, people will look at you differently. People look at you differently. Because when you live for the praises of one, for the praise of one, Rather than that of the multitude, it's inevitable that you will stand out. When you're the only one that's not following the crowd. If you've ever gone to watch uh, a symphony or an orchestra or a band concert or something like that, you'll see everyone on stage. Everyone on stage is facing the crowd. Everyone on stage is facing the crowd. And the conductor is the only one that sticks out as he stands on the podium. Listen, if you want to lead the orchestra, you have to turn your back against the crowd. If you want to lead the orchestra, you have to turn your back against the crowd. God created us to be set apart, to be a city upon a hill. And so why are we doing all that we can so desperately trying to fit in? Why are we just going with the flow? Why do we join the crowd? Matthew 7.13 says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. That's the first thing we see. The second thing that we see in this passage is, we're far worse than we actually think, yet more loved than we could ever dare to dream. We're far worse than we could ever think to actually think yet more loved in Christ than we could ever dare to dream. As I hang out with some of the families here at Harvest these days, more often than not, it entails babysitting the kids. I think I just have, I'm a pastor slash babysitter at Harvest. And so I get to play these games, right? So we play hide and seek with this game that they made up called Machu Picchu. Uh, Machu Picchu is a game in which they make me a monster and I have to catch them. The thing is, like, I'm not actually allowed to catch them. And so I, I kind of don't see the purpose of this game. And it's a silly game. 
But I've noticed a couple of things as I like hang out and like babysit these kids. Notice a couple of things. The one of them is that they're very particular about their toys and sharing their things. They're very particular. As I observe the interaction, some of the things they say are hilarious, okay? They'll say things like, well, we're not friends anymore because I don't like you, okay? See who I'm trying to imitate. Or, Elijah, you can't play with these because these are girls' toys. You can't play with these because these are for girls only. And my favorite one being, this is my favorite. You can play with everything else, but you can't play with this one because this is my favorite toy. Like, we don't have to teach the child to, to think selfishly. Like, we don't have to teach them that. Psalm 51.5 says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. From the moment we existed in this world, we were sinful people. And I found something online called the 10 Toddler's Rules of Possession. So I'm going to read it to you all. 10 Toddler's Rules of Possession. Number one, if I like it, it's mine. Two, if it's in my hand, it's mine. If I can take it from you, it's mine. If I had it a little while ago, it's mine. If it's mine, it must never appear to be yours in any way. If I'm doing or building something, all the pieces are mine. If it looks just like mine, it's mine. If I saw it first, it's mine. If you are playing with something and you put it down, it automatically becomes mine. Number 10. If it is broken, it's yours. For those of you who are married and have children, or those of you guys who have played with the children at our church or in some other context, like you've seen some of the, like, their deceitful, sneaky, and selfish behavior. Right? They're like so sneaky, conniving. It's not like anyone teaches them to do these things, though. Like no one teaches them to be like this. I'm pretty sure, you know, Pomi and Eugene, they don't teach Evelyn to be like this. But we as human beings are inherently sinful. We're sinful. The original sin resulting from Adam and Eve. And I was talking with some people this past week, and one of them was Michelle Shin. I don't think she's in town. I think she left town, but uh, she loves, 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 loves to have DT. DT is deep talk. She loves deep talk. Okay? And this group I was with was arguing about whether girls or boys were more evil. And they somehow came to the conclusion that girls were evil and boys were dumb. Okay, that's their conclusion. Girls are evil, boys are dumb. <laughs> And I didn't say this like while they were having this conversation, but what I wanted to say was that at the heart of it, we're all wicked, sinful human beings. The influences of sin affect the whole person, our bodies, our hearts, our minds. There's no part that can escape. Like our entire body, our entire being is fallen. And we as human beings are the people that have rebelled against God. Day after day after day, countless nights, as I read through news headlines, my heart can't help but to mourn over the brokenness in this world. I mourn over the atrocities that take place, racial injustice, sex trafficking, slavery, genocide, wars, and I pray How much longer, God? How much longer till you come? How much longer till that we have to live in this broken and fallen world? How much longer? You see, a lot of us think we're bad. We're not all that bad. 
We compare ourselves to the people around us. We compare ourselves to, the, to ISIS, the people in the Middle East who are commi- committing these heinous acts of atrocities. And we think, we think to ourselves, we're not like them. We're not like these other people. We're, we're pretty good people. We're pretty good. Charles Spurgeon says, As the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. It is so sadly there, so abundantly there, that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. Guys, we need to get this. We need to get this. We have to understand the depths of our sin. We have to see just how big our sins really are. And how it has ravished all of humanity. Most of y'all have probably heard this before, but if we think our sin is small, if we think our sin is small, then we're only going to need a little Savior. If we get a great sense of our sin, we're going to need a big Savior. It's here that we can see the complete wickedness of human nature. If you look at verse 18, it says, Pilate knew that it was out of envy that they, the Jewish leaders, handed Jesus over to them. It was out of envy. They envied the popularity Jesus had had. They hated his ministry and his teachings. They were jealous of his fame, his followers, his ability to perform miracles. They even had to come up with a lie to put Jesus on trial. They were so evil, so detestable that they would kill a man they knew and believed to be innocent. And as Pilate questioned the leaders, he offered a second chance to rescind their accusations against Jesus. But their minds, their minds were already made up. Their minds were made up. And even the fickle crowd is persuaded by the Jewish leaders. How easily they were swayed, how easily they were persuaded into saying, crucify him. The voice of the people echoed as they shouted, let his blood be on us and our children. They placed the crucifixion of Jesus directly on themselves. So who was it then that the people wanted to be set free? We come across a man here by the name of Barabbas. And there isn't much that's said about him, but we know that uh, he's an important man. He's an important character in the New Testament. Because we can see approximately 38 verses or so that relate to Barabbas. And so think about it. There are less verses dedicated to Judas than there are Barabbas. 38 verses that entail Barabbas in the passage. And if there's one person, if there's one person in all of humanity, all of scripture, all throughout history, who knew what it meant to literally have Jesus take his cross and die in his place, it was Barabbas. We know that from this passage, he was a bad, bad man. Pilate deliberately chose the most notorious prisoner that he had, a convicted robber, murderer, felon. Barabbas' name means son of his father. As we learned last week, Bar is translated into son. So Bar means son. Simon Bar Jonah, Simon son of Jonah. So if you combine Bar with Abba, Bar with Abba, Abba meaning father, you have son of his father. 
And if you look at the original manuscripts, it actually says his name was Jesus Barabbas. His name was Jesus Barabbas. And this was most likely his full name. But it was removed as scribes copy the New Testament manuscript. The scribes removed it because they wouldn't want to think of this man having the same name as Jesus Christ. In verse 22, Pilate asks, who do you want me to release to you? And all the people said, Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Then he proceeds to say, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? There had to have been a Jesus Barabbas and a Jesus who is called Christ. And out of reverence for Jesus Christ, the scribes omitted the name from Jesus before Barabbas. And so the crowd is given a choice between these two men, these two men that we see, between the son of a father or the son of the father, between a man of violent insurrection or the prince of peace, a man of the sword or a man of the cross, a criminal and a felon or an innocent, almighty and kind king. They want Barabbas. They want Barabbas. They would rather have Barabbas, a wretched man, set free. And I would have, like, I'm I'm imagining, I would have imagined Barabbas to be sitting in his cell waiting for his inevitable death, knowing very well that he would be crucified on the cross. So he was sitting in this cell waiting to be crucified. And I've read about um, people who... um, who are about to be hung, and oftentimes they like what they do is they put their hands around their neck, and they imagine the net, the rope that is soon going to take the life out of them, and they imagine it, they feel it, they try to think of what it's going to feel like. And for others who know that their fate is in the gas chamber, this is what they do: they take, they practice breathing, they take deep breaths in and out, trying to hold their breath as long as they can as they think of the hissing sound of the gas as it enters into the chamber. And they do whatever they can to elongate their lives. They do whatever they can just to live for a couple seconds longer. And so you have Barabbas, who probably sat in a dark and damp and dreadful prison cell, looking at the palm of his hands. Looking at the palm of his hands thinking about the nails that would soon be driven, that would soon pierce through his hands. So he's feeling it. And he might have recalled images of people he's seen die on the cross, seen images of the crucifixion, of the agonizing, painful, and slow death of the crucifixion. And as he sat there, he hears the soldiers coming for him. Footstep, one footstep after another. He hears the soldiers coming for him. And he thinks, this is it. I'm going to hang on the cross. This is, this is the last day that I will be on earth. I, my life is coming to an end. And he hears the crowd screaming. He hears their, their murmurs. He hears all the things that the crowd is saying. He doesn't hear exactly what they say, but his heart begins to, to beat. Race faster and faster and faster. He hears the chain, the door unlock. And the soldiers come in and say, you see that man over there? You see that man over there? His name is Jesus, who is called Christ. And he took your place. 
He took your place. You're a free man now. You're free to go. And they take off his chains. They take off the chains around his wrist. And he walks away probably thinking, man, the people love me. The people love me. This Jesus guy, he must be worse than I am. Not knowing who Jesus is. This Jesus guy, he's worse than I am. And while I was praying through this sermon, I had a really difficult time preparing it. Because the entire time, I couldn't help but to think, I'm Barabbas. I'm Barabbas. That's me. This is me. And the only words that I could muster up was, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. And I sat there and wept as I wept over the wickedness of my own heart. My complete and utter depravity. Sometimes there are things that like, cross my mind that kind of catch me off guard. And I'm like, did I, did I really just think that? Did I really just think that thought? And it surprises me how I could think of such a deplorable and wicked thought. The sinful nature of my own heart that scares me. It scares me to death. The thoughts that you, got, you guys can't see in me. The ulterior motives of my heart. Because I know the things that are waging war in my soul. And the wicked, shameful, hideous, hideousness of who I am. Of who I am. I am the chief of sinners. I am the worst. Jesus came to save sinners of whom I'm the worst. No one imagined that four to six years ago that I would be, that I would be here preaching here in this pulpit. No one imagined that. Are you kidding me? For those of you who know, you're like, what? He's in ministry? No one would have imagined that I would be here today. Because of the life that I lived, the sins that I, I was committing, the brokenness in me. And it's only by the grace of God that I stand here. That's it. God looked at my guilt and my shame and my pride and said, he's mine. This man is mine. But how? How is that possible? Jesus knew that the father would have to treat him like Barabbas so that he could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Some of you might be thinking, you don't know me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the depth of my sin. And you're right. I don't know you. But what I do know is that no sin, past, present, or future is more powerful than the cross of Christ. God sees your messiness. He knows that you're going to mess up. He knows that you're going to fail him time and time again. He sees all that you are. Every wicked thought in your body, in your heart, in your mind. He sees everything. And he knows you. And at the same time, he relentlessly pursues after you. Because this cross demonstrates just how far God is willing to go because he loves you. For while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. You think you're jacked up? No, 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 no. We're far worse than we could ever think. Far worse than we could ever think. Yet God loves us more than we could ever 
dare to imagine. This is the gospel. Nothing we can do can make God love us any more or any less because he loves us with the same love that he has for Jesus Christ. There have been times when I've thought to myself, I've deserved these chains. I deserve these chains. Take me. Let, let him go instead. Take me. It's, I should have been crucified. I should have been the one on the cross. I should have hung, suffered, and died. It should have been me. Let him go. Take me. I deserve the repercussions of my own sin. Why? Why, Jesus? Why? But God takes the chains off of Barabbas and he puts them on Jesus. He puts them on our Savior. And you see, either Barabbas must die or Christ must die. Barabbas must die or Christ must die. The wrath of God had to be satisfied. And in the greatest act of love this world has ever seen, God satisfied himself by substituting himself. He took our place. Christ exchanged his life for ours in this great, beautiful, and magnificent exchange. We were supposed to die on that cross. And a lot of times we talk about God's unconditional love. God's unconditional love, but we fail to see that there was a condition. And that condition was the cross. Jesus knew the will of the Father, and he had to go to the cross at Calvary so that we could be set free, so that we could go free from the chains of bondage and sin in order to be treated like Jesus. And unlike the children's law of possession, Jesus says, if it's broken, it's mine. I won't let you go. I don't condemn you. I don't judge you. You're mine. You're my beloved son, my beloved daughter. You are mine, and I am yours. Let's pray. I'm going to give you all a moment to respond, but how far have you strayed? How have you fallen? This past week, this past month, this past year? You think you're jacked up? You think you're broken? You think you're messed up? Let me tell you, this is the best place to be. This is the best place to be. Because a scandalous act of love will be all the more beautiful. All the more beautiful. What have you done? What are you hiding? So that God sees all the things in our hearts, all the things that we think. He knows all of who we are and says, I love you. He says, I see you, I know you, yet I love you. I 
This is, this is our greatest want and desire. Tim Keller says to be known and loved. To be known and loved. This is our desire. And God sees that. He looks at everything that we've done and says, I love you. This is how much I love you. I'm willing to go to the cross for you. Where we deserve to be. We have to understand that it was our sins. Our sins that held Jesus there. We have to see this. He looks at the deepest parts of us and says, I love you. The price has already been paid. A lot of times I think we think we have to work for ourselves. We have to earn our salvation, but the price has already been paid. The price has been paid, and Jesus says to go free. I've purchased you by my blood. Ever his, and he is ours. We are children of God. So let's take a moment to respond and then we'll continue in our worship. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much. We thank you so much that today on Palm Sunday, when you rode into Jerusalem, people laid down palm branches and their cloaks. That the very people who said crown him and would later say crucify him, that these are the people, that we are the people that you died for took our place. We thank you for saving a people like us, for wretched sinners, undeserving of your grace and your mercy. Would you be with us as we continue in worship? Help us to love you more, to know the depth and magnitude of how beautiful this cross is. We love you so much. We thank you. Your son's every prayer.